Welcome to our podcast, episode 81. Thanks for joining us. A few episodes ago, I, I mentioned something in passing that I then subsequently developed in a, in a blog post, and I wanted to circle back around and, and talk about it a little bit. I want to talk about when, uh, uh, when is the prophetic payout, because there are two different approaches to prophecy. There's two different, and, and these prophecies can be um, biblical prophecies or interpretive pro- uh, interpretations of biblical prophecies, or they can be secular prophecies of the kind that environmentalists make. If we don't, um, if we don't cut our carbon emissions uh, within three years, we're all going to die. That is a secular prophecy. But it's not enough to say that something someone is being prophetic or someone is making a prophecy or someone is making a, a prediction uh, because there, we have to divide it into two, two categories. There are two kinds of prophets, two kinds of prophecy listeners, prophecy hearers, two kinds of prophetic audiences. Uh, in 1 Samuel 3, verse 11, you have a description of a, a biblical prophetic audience. When, some, when, when this thing comes to pass, then the ears of, the ears of those who hear of it will tingle. Um, the payout, in a biblical understanding of prophecy, the payout uh, is the emotional payout is at the time of fulfillment. When you see this word come to pass, you go, whoa, yeah, that really strikes you. It's, it's Simeon in the temple taking the baby Jesus in his arms or Anna coming by and, um, and, and speaking of the arrival of the Messiah. So you are blessed in the payout. You're blessed in the fulfillment. But the other kind of um, prophetic payout is where the payout, the, the, the dopamine rush that people get, is what happens when the prophecy is made. All right? So this explains why um, uh, radical dispensationalists of the Hal Lindsey stripe can make false prediction after false prediction, and it doesn't they're, – they're still around. You know, if – so if um, uh, Hal Lindsey uh, said basically um, – uh, the Balfour Declaration establishing the nation of Israel was um, in 1948. Uh, the nation of Israel, um, it kicks off the prophetic, the establishment of the nation of Israel gets the prophetic clock ticking again. Uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. A biblical generation is 40 years. And so 40 years from 1948 is 1988. The Lord's got to come by 88. So so that sort of prediction is made, and then it doesn't happen. And and yet, Hal Lindsey is not laughed off the stage. Other people who predict the end of the world are not laughed off the stage. And people can say, well, see, that's, that's because you um, Christians are just fundamentalist rednecks. Well, no, Al Gore isn't laughed off the stage either, right? 
Uh, Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb. There, there's a false prophecy. How is it possible for someone to make a um, hundred false prophecies in a row and still be listened to at 95, 96, 97, 98, and so on? How is that possible? Well, it's because what the pro- what that prophet is delivering is an adrenaline rush at the time of the prophecy is made. So what he has got to be is not someone in in tune with time and eternity. Uh, the lurid prophet doesn't have to be in communication with the author of all history. He just has to be a good storyteller. He just has to be able to get the audience's attention, tell them the st- a story that will grip and excite them and thrill them. And if they walk out of the auditorium that night with a feeling of, of excitement, all abuzz with that feeling of excitement, then they got everything they were looking for. So if, um, if someone says, and if we don't act now in three months, the entire Amazon river basin is going to be paved over. If we don't act right this minute, tonight, um, all that matters for the people listening to that is that they get a rush at that moment. Three months from now, they're not going to care. Six months from now, they're not going to care. Three years from now, they're not going to care. In fact, someone could circle back around and deliver the same prophecy about the same um, Amazon River Basin a decade later, and the person wouldn't care. What he cares about is the the story grip in the moment. What he cares cares about is whether it thrilled him down to the bone in the moment. Biblical Christians don't think like that. Biblical Christians say a prophecy, a for, at least a prophecy that has to do with telling the future, is worth something or nothing based upon whether or not it comes to pass. So that's why the, the test of a, of a true prophet in Deuteronomy 18 is that what he says actually comes to pass. If, if a man says, thus saith the Lord, and what he says does not come to pass, Deuteronomy 18 says that we're not to listen. We're not, we're not to listen. Uh, Isaiah throws out a taunt to the heathen gods. He says, show us the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Right? Um, if, you are to sh- if you are to describe for us the dying polar bear, or the, the, uh, and, and you're to do so in a vivid, exciting way, and everybody gets a lump in their throat, that doesn't, that doesn't meet Isaiah's challenge that we may know that you're gods. It actually has to happen. Otherwise, all we know is not that you're gods, but that you're a vivid storyteller. And so what people are after now in their prophets is entertainment. People want to be entertained by their prophets. They don't want their prophets to tell them what's actually going to come to pass. Christians aren't to be like that. So, continuing with podcast um, 81, we come to our book review uh, section. This is another, I've been, I've been, uh, I'm on a jag here. I've been mentioning a a number of canon titles. Uh, This book, Plowing in Hope, is 
also available from Canon. The, the author is Hegeman, uh, Plowing in Hope. Uh, this, this book is a short, accessible, readable introduction to what the cultural mandate actually means. What does the cultural mandate actually entail? I'm fond of saying that theology comes out your fingertips, and whatever it is that's coming out your fingertips is your theology. Most Christians today are operating with some kind of dualism, where they've got a heavenly realm or a spiritual realm or an ethereal realm where Jesus lives and where their soul goes to visit Jesus periodically, and then the world around them, the world of material, um, uh, the five senses and whatnot. And this is a world that we inhabit together with the non-believers. And the material world runs on certain rules, certain laws that we and the non-Christians share. And then we've got this unique spot, this uh, Jesus place that we go to and eventually we'll go to entirely when we die. Uh, that kind of dualism is just no no good for us. What we want to do is learn how to live integrated lives, fully integrated lives. And if you want to learn how to do this, if you want to learn how to think biblically about um, the world around you uh, and what God told us to do um, with the world around us, uh, this book, Plowing in Hope, is a great place to start. God, God made the world, and at every stage of the creation, he looked down on it, and he said, it's good, and that's good, and that's good. Uh, we can see that marriage is good. Marriage existed before the fall. Marriage is not the result, not a result of the fall. We see that work is good. God created man for work, and God gave Adam a task. He gave him a job. He gave him a vocation before, uh, before sin entered the world. God gave the cultural mandate to Adam and said, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it. Um, this whole planet is yours. And that was given before the fall. Uh, so we were, the, the cultural mandate, the, the uh, command to exercise dominion is something that was given before the fall. And someone might say, well, yes, but doesn't the fall alter or erase all these things? No, the, the fall makes it more difficult for men and women to be married, but no, it's no less necessary. Um, marriage is uh, part of God's framework for all of reality, and being married to a sinner is harder than being married to someone who doesn't sin, uh, and that's true for both of you. So sin complicates marriage, but sin doesn't erase the need for it. Sin complicates work. Uh, God uh, gave Adam work before the fall. But after the fall, uh, that's when the thorns and thistles come in. The work of bearing children was going to be work before the, before the fall, but God greatly increased travail or pain in childbearing. Um, work became more um, complicated because of sin. So work, and the same thing is true of the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate doesn't go away because of sin, but sin complicates it. One of the ways we know that the cultural mandate is not abrogated or set aside is because uh, after the, the flood, when Noah and the, when the eight 
in the ark were spared, Noah was spared, the first thing that happens after um, they um, disembark from the ark is uh, a renewal of the cultural mandate. So the cultural mandate that was given in Genesis before the fall is renewed again after the fall, and not only after the fall, but after a remarkable global judgment on the sinfulness of uh, humankind. So right after this spectacular judgment on human sin, God renews the cultural mandate. He tells Noah, uh, Noah who's uh, functioning there as a second Adam, as a new Adam, uh, is being given the world again, and he's told to exercise dominion again. And I would go so far as to say that um, in the New Testament, uh, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the uh, Great Commission is, in effect, a renewal of the cultural mandate. We're not just told to go out and preach the gospel to sinners so that if any one of those sinners gets hit by a truck, they will go to heaven. We are told to disciple the nations. We're told to disciple all the tribes of men such that they are baptized and they are taught obedience to everything that Jesus taught. And what Jesus taught includes the Old Testament. It includes the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy. It, it includes a full-orbed Christian worldview. So, circling back around to my um, book recommend this time, Plowing in Hope by Hegeman. Plowing in Hope. A great, um, a great start to this thrilling topic. So continuing with podcast episode 81, we come to our hamartiology section. The word anthropoctonos, anthropoctonos means murderer, and it's used three times in the New Testament, and all three uses are from the Apostle John. Interestingly, this appears to be the fundamental sin that the devil is charged with. The first usage is from John 8:44. He says, um, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And then the word is used twice in 1 John 3.15. Whoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Now, although John is applying this to anyone who hates in this way, the diabolical ancestry of the sin is plain. Such haters are like Cain, and Cain was like the wicked one, verse 12, and the wicked one, the, his father the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. So those who do wrong are of their father the devil, and the first place this shows up is in the sin of hateful envy, um, Cain's envy of his brother Abel, that drives to murder that resulted in the first fratricide. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.